Seems like everybody's done being nice. It's cool, actually. This ties right into Islam because in Islam there is something kind of like baptism where they, they basically use water every time before they pray. You hear those calls to prayer. Every time before they pray, they wash themselves symbolically, their hands, their head, and their feet. And it is symbolic of washing away the sin. So we share something like that. I mean, ours is a little bit different because of our faith in Jesus and the fact that he died and resurrected. That's very different than Islam. But uh, I'm really excited, actually. So let's pray before we dive in. Dear God, thank you so much for the hope that we have in you, that you are doing stuff in these people's lives who are baptized and each of our lives. Thanks that we no longer are slaves to sin, that you're involved in our lives, and that we're slaves to you now, and we have a new life in you. And uh, speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, I can't wait to tell you guys about my super, super dear friends who are Muslims. Um, I went to India for three winters to revamp a ski program for a local school in Kashmir. Um, and actually, a branch of this school was burned down by radical Muslims um, in this town called Tangmarg. This, this televangelist burned a copy of the Quran on TV, and they got all up in arms. They got angry. They burned a school in Tangmarg, um, which is a branch of the school that we went to. But the reason I went to India was the gospel. The gospel is Jesus making a way for us and inviting us into God's personal, loving, transformative presence. This is the beauty of all of our scriptures. It leads us to this, right? It exists to tell us this. It's why we're here. And it's why I went there. So let me give you a little background on Kashmir. It's super volatile. Um, there's a lot of radical, lot of radicalism on both sides of the spectrum, Hindu and Muslim. Um, India wants it. Pakistan wants it. It's a region way up north um, in India. It's bordered by Pakistan and China. Everybody's fighting over it. It's mostly political conflict, and often in political conflicts, religion gets attached and used as a weapon. Sometimes it's just religious violence in Kashmir. But, so, just, there's a little background on it. Um, We flew into Delhi, me and my buddy Johnny, who went there to revamp the ski program, flew into Delhi, and we met up with this guy named Edison. He's a local Indian, and he's been working with Muslims in India for like 30 years, probably 40 years now. Um, And he goes, okay, guys, Here's the deal. You can't let anybody know you're a Christian in Kashmir. And we're like, hmm. He's like, it's way too volatile right now. If you guys go up there, there's too many radicals, you're going to get murdered. And we're like, hmm. We're in Delhi already. I guess we're going. (laughs) So we went anyway. But he was worried. He was genuinely concerned. And he knows his stuff. But... And in a little more perspective, Abbottabad, which is where Osama bin Laden was um, captured and killed, is in Pakistan. 
from the top of the mountain where we skied, you climb up and you can look down into Abbottabad. So we're really in close proximity to this kind of radical Islam that's not normative, but it is radical. Um, despite Edison's warnings, we went forward, mostly just out of stupidity. <laughs> and in spite of us, me and Johnny, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of our stupidity, I think God's love had, and hopefully still has, an impact on that community. So a little bit about this school that we went to teach for. It's called the Tyndale, Bisco and Mallinson School. Bisco schools for boys, Mallinson schools for girls. Um, it was started by a church mission society uh, in 1880. So it's super old. It was started during colonialism. So we're standing on this foundation of missions, right? The gospel going out. But during that time of missions, there was this really strong sense of colonialism. And that still carries on in Kashmir, especially to this day, because of the conflict. So we're trying to wrestle with, you know, how do we interact with these people in this school? And this school is almost 100% Muslim staff and students. There's probably three staff that are not Muslim, and there's probably 40 or so students that are not Muslim. And they're not Christian, they're Sikh, which is a different religion in India. Um, But yeah, that's a little background on the school. It's been around for a while, but they're conflicted. The Muslims are conflicted about this school because it was started by this colonial empire, England, in their mind. But it was really missionaries. So we're wrestling with that. One of the beautiful things about Islam and Islamic culture is this very community-oriented. Families and neighborhoods and people are very closely knit. Like, they care for each other like nobody I've ever seen. But that makes it hard to get in, right? Or reach them or even connect with them. But me and Johnny had an in. Our in was skiing. And once you're in, they will, they will die for you. I have no questions. These are my dear friends. No question in my mind they would die for me. And I would die for them in a second. And they're still Muslim to this day. One thing I learned is that apologetics, arguing, you know, points of our faith. I went in with this grand idea that I was going to argue everybody I met there into believing in Jesus. And it didn't go too good. (laughs) The first year I was there, we just had tons and tons of arguments, which was really fun because in that culture, you can be yelling at someone, you grab them and shake them, and they always grab you and shake you, and they shake each other, and they're yelling at each other, and they're in your face, like right up. And it doesn't matter because then your best friend's right after. It doesn't matter. It's just cultural. But we had a bunch of arguments the first year. One time we were arguing about the Trinity because they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in the one God. They're monotheistic. Um, but we were arguing about the Trinity. This guy, this guy who's super radical guy, he gets super fired up. I was like, he's going to kill us. This is it. This is what Edison was talking about. This, it's, it's done. But then he says in order, he's yelling at his friends because they stopped yelling at us. They're yelling at each other. And they're yelling at each other, and then he says, wait a minute, wait a minute. In Urdu, he goes, don't call them pagans. They're people of the book. He started defending me and Johnny because they believe that the Torah, the prophets, the Psalms of David, and the Synoptic Gospels, they call the Injil, are scriptural. Are they part of their scriptures? 
So he said, you have to deal with them fairly. But I still have never argued any Muslim, even my dearest friends, into changing any of their beliefs. The funny thing is they love evangelizing. Christianity and Islam are the two biggest proselytizing religions. They're always trying to convert people, and we're always trying to convert people. So they're always trying to convert me. It makes for super fun conversations or arguments where you think you're going to die. Um, but they've never argued me into believing something else. So apologetics didn't really work there. Arguing about our beliefs. Let's talk about some of these beliefs. There are some differences that these dear friends of mine have to my beliefs for sure. And it's good to talk about them with them. And with each other in this context too. One major difference is they believe the Quran is their scripture. They believe it's pre-existent before everything. Kind of like we believe Jesus, the word of God, is pre-existent before everything. They attribute those qualities to the Quran. And they believe the Quran is completely divine. There's no human aspect to it at all. It's just straight down from heaven, dictated, you know, written down, word for word. It's very, very static. Not like our scripture that's alive, right? But one of the things about this view of the Quran is that they have to follow this very static, rigid scripture. It makes it so they're kind of stuck in like the 8th century almost. And notice a lot of Muslim cultures are very, very kind of, not stuck, but they're, you know, they live like it's a long time ago. One of the benefits of that is actually their value of hospitality. If you enter into their home, they will give everything to you. They'll, they'll starve to give you food. It's crazy. It's amazing. They love people well. That's a benefit of it, but there's also downfalls. A different belief that they have than us is that they do not believe Jesus died. The Quran is a little bit unclear about this. The Arabic is super weird around this passage where they get this from. Um, and there's some contradictions in the Quran, like it says Jesus was caused to die, and then it says later, it appeared that he died. But basically, all Muslims today believe that Jesus didn't die. It was just looked like he did. But that's because they live in this honor-shame culture, and they believe Jesus is a prophet, and an important prophet. But in this honor-shame culture, for a prophet of God to be crucified is like the ultimate shame. It's unimaginable. So they, they almost like have to reject it because of their culture and their worldview. They believe Muhammad is the last prophet. So he's like, there's all these prophets, including David and the prophets in the Old Testament and Jesus. But Muhammad is the last prophet. He's not perfect in their eyes. He's human. But he's like the seal on the revelation of God. He's like the cap, the, the ultimate, you know, finishing revelation. Um, where we believe the seal of our faith is the Holy Spirit, right? Working in our lives, in our hearts, renewing us every day. For Muslims, salvation is, is a bit more works-oriented. So they call God the All-Merciful. They believe he's loving, but he's kind of distant, which we'll talk about. 
So there's these two angels. One angel takes down all the bad things you do, records it. One angel takes down all the good things you do and records it. At the end, when you die, they weigh it and then judge by that. Hope for the best. So their kind of mode for life is try to be a good person and hope for the best. I asked my friend about this, and I was like, so is that, like, hard? Is that, do you just despair sometimes? He's like, well, I don't know. There's not much hope but because God's will is inscrutable. That's what he said. So who knows? You know, your bad might outweigh your good, but who knows? So it's almost like, I don't know. It's just hard to comprehend with the Christian understanding of Jesus doing it for us. Now, this shame and honor, we should define, because this is a huge aspect of every Muslim culture anywhere in the world. So shame, defined by Brene Brown, is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the fear of disconnection. So it's a super social, public concept of shame. And then honor is also public. It's the concept of worth or value of a person, both in their eyes and in the eyes of their village, neighborhood, or society. So it's a super public nature of respect and reputation. This is really different, actually, from our Western worldview, where empirical evidence is very important. For them, empirical evidence plays almost no role. We view everything in the, through the lens of kind of innocence versus guilt. So there's a little contrast in our cultures. Another belief that they differ in us from is, is that God is distant. So God made everything in the, in the Muslim eyes, and he made everything, and he kind of winds the, winds the watch, and then he steps back. And there's angels, and they believe in Satan. They say Shaitan. And there's also other spirits called jinn that are both good and bad. And they're involved, those spirits are involved, but God's kind of distant. And since he's distant, he's kind of unknowable, except through the Quran, which is this very static thing that is only in classical Arabic. And barely anybody can understand classical Arabic unless they're scholars. Then there's these hadith, which are um, the sayings of Muhammad. They wrote down, they're, they're authoritative, kind of like scripture for them. But they're not as authoritative as the Quran. It's interesting. They say things like, you know, guys should have a beard and dye it red and shave their mustache. Because that's what Muhammad did. You want to be like Muhammad. And that'll get you more points, you know. They say things like that. Some strange things. And it keeps them, it keeps, it keeps them you know, in an older time frame. Uh, Muslims have a very different concept of uh, gender and gender roles than we do. I want to tell you about this lady, Aisha Khan. She's been on the screen up there. She had a she had a goggles and a hijab on, which covers her face and her head. Um, but this woman was born in Ladakh, so she was born in a Buddhist context. But she converted to Islam and moved to Kashmir because it better suited her lifestyle because she's Muslim. Um, but this lady is, she could run the school, she could run the ski program, she could do everything by herself. She's amazing. And she's talented, it's crazy. 
So she has this sort of, she has the respect of the men. She even eats with the men, which is unheard of in almost every Muslim culture. But she earned that spot somehow with her skills and her presence. Um, and uh, all the men, when they, when they talk to her, they don't make eye contact. Because that would be bad for them. That would be shameful for them to do. It would be like putting her on the same level as them. So they don't do that. But she gets the same level, or like her competence put her above those people. It's super interesting. But she's the exception, and so that exception hopefully gives you some idea of what the norm is. There's a lot of women who walk around in cashmere with the full coverings. You know, you can't even see their eyes. And that's still really common. So there's some differences between Islam and Christianity, for sure. But I think these similarities that we're going to look at can build some bridges as far as relationships and friendships with some Muslims. It definitely did for me. My friend Arif Khan, who's a ski racer in India, I think he's the best skier in India. He's awesome. He's from Gulmarg, which is the little village where we ski. He's always trying to convert me. And just recently, like a couple weeks ago, he sent me this thing on Facebook. He said, here's 13 valid reasons why and how Muslims are like Jesus, peace be upon him, They always attach that to a prophet. And truer followers of Jesus than most Christians believe. I was like, yeah, you got my attention. Number one, Jesus, peace be upon him, taught that there is only one God and only God should be worshipped as taught in Deuteronomy 6.4 and Mark 12.29. I was like, okay, I'm on board. Muslims also believe this as taught in the Quran. he says. Number two, these are his words. Jesus, peace be upon him, didn't eat pork, as taught in Leviticus 11.7. And neither do Muslims, as taught in the Quran. Right? Jesus was Jewish. He followed the Jewish law. Muslims follow something very, very close to the Jewish law because they believe in the Torah. It's too bad they don't eat pork because I eat bacon like every single day. <laughs> so we differ in that a little bit in our lifestyles. Number three. Jesus, peace be upon him, greeted with the words, "Assalamu alaikum, which just means, it's Arabic for peace be upon you, or peace be with you. It's one of my favorite greetings, because you can say it to anybody of any religion or background with, like, real genuine feeling. It was actually the first thing I said to anybody in Kashmir when we landed, and they're picking us up from the airport, and I was like, "Assalamu alaikum." Oh, they're like, oh, you speak Urdu, which is like a Hindi and Arabic kind of mixed. They're like, oh, you speak Urdu? I was like, not really, sorry. (laughs) But I mean it. (laughs) But Muslims greet each other in this way all the time. Number four, Jesus, peace be upon him, always said, God willing, which in Arabic is inshallah, just means God willing. They say this all the time. They say it before doing anything, which is taught by the Quran. But this kind of plays out. They say, God's will is inscrutable. We don't know what it's going to be. And we can't really do anything about it. And this plays out in their culture a lot. I noticed in uh, the concepts of rich versus poor. If someone's poor, it must be God's will. So we don't really do anything to help them. They are commanded in the Quran to give alms, which they give to the mosque. And the mosque gives to the poor. But it's not, there's no concept of like justice or raising people up or having any sort of equality. It also plays out in war versus peace. They think, oh, our 
our community is at war. There's conflict. It must be God's will. We'll play into that, see who wins. That's God's will. If it's at peace, that must be God's will too. They're kind of like, you know, hands off almost. Number 13, skipping down. This is his words. He says, Jesus, peace be upon him, spoke Aramaic and called God Elah, which is pronounced the same as Allah. Right? Aramaic is an ancient biblical language, one of the Semitic languages, which includes Hebrew and Arabic. And the Aramaic Elah and the Arabic Allah are the same. He says, the Arabic Elah is derived from the Arabic Allah. It means God. In Arabic, it means the supreme, almighty God. I should insert here that my friend, who's uh, Egyptian, a Christian, has an amazing faith. In his Arabic Bible, his Christian Bible, the Arabic Allah is the word for God. So he says, it's the same. You can easily see the similarity in their pronunciation. So this concludes that... The God of Jesus is also the God of Muslims, of all mankind, and all that exist. He goes, who is the real follower of Jesus? Peace be upon him. Obviously, Muslims. Right? That's his punchline. He's like, I got you. But I know it doesn't offend me, and it, all, it doesn't change my beliefs. I know he, he's coming from a place of love. This guy is amazing. He's trying to evangelize me. But his arguments didn't change my belief system but this guy's amazing because he's this is the same guy who's distressed by christian tourists people from western nations so europe russia america um australia all those they view as christian okay and they think everybody in those are christian and these tourists come to his town and they start drinking and they're sleeping around and they bring drugs. And he's like, this is terrible for my village. This is such immorality. It's really darkness. It's so bad. And I was like, so you, you say that um, Jesus is a prophet and you're supposed to follow his teachings. Or Isa is what the Arabic is for Jesus, Isa. I was like, you say Isa, is, you should follow him. And you're concerned about the darkness of the ski and snowboard culture. And you want to be a light. I was like, you should. Have you heard of SFC? You should be SFI, a skier for Isa. <laughs> but he believes Islam is the religion of human nature. So Christianity makes sort of the same claim, right? Like we believe that Jesus is the way to be most human. If you follow him, Following Jesus brings redemption, right? We become more human that way. We also share the belief that God is the God of love and justice, which is interesting. So let me share some things I learned about God and myself and others and obedient living from my Muslim friends. And I learned all this through the filter of the gospel, God's love. I learned that Christians should see Muslims who give ultimate allegiance to God as the supreme good, as allies in resisting the tendency in contemporary culture to see mere pleasure rather than justice and love as the hallmark of the good life. So I learned to reject the association of freedom to do with one, 
freedom to do what one pleases with Christianity and reject the idea that blind submission to the iron law of God is Islam. I also learned that all people, these guys, my, some of my dearest friends, who are always trying to convert me, I learned from them, that all people have the right to witness about their faith. And hindering that right in any way would be an assault on human dignity, right? I'd be like, if I said, oh, you can't talk to me about that, but I'm going to evangelize you, that would be an assault on their dignity. But at the same time, those who witness about their faith have an obligation to follow the golden rule. So I learned to reject both all suppression of freedom of expression and all uncharitable ways of exercising that freedom. There's some fun ways that are loving to exercise that freedom that we learned from Jesus. I also learned, I mean, remember the conversations that got heated where we're like trying to convert each other and then this, and we're like scared for our lives. But then my friend says, wait a minute, wait a minute. These are people of the book because they have some of the same scriptures they call Jews and Christians, people of the book. He's like, we got to deal with them fairly. I learned that Muslims are thirsty for God. Many are passionate about God. But for them, because of the honor-shame culture, conversion is unimaginable because it'd be complete disconnection from every person that they care about, everything they care about. Complete disconnection. It'd almost be like if we were to join ISIS. That's how they view it. That's how, kind of how they view the West because of propaganda. Um, but I learned that Muslims should want to know Jesus, right? And it's my fault they don't. I've done a bad job presenting him just by arguing. Arguing my points, you know, making the best <laughs> rhetoric. I learned that Jesus is in a Muslim context. The closest thing we have today to the culture that Jesus walked around in every day is actually the Muslim culture. I learned that Jesus is already there. He's doing stuff, right? He loves those people. He's everywhere. He's doing stuff there. There's this guy, Carl, who's lived in Lebanon for a long time working with Muslims. And he got invited to meet the Grand Imam of Iraq, which is like the Pope of Iraq. Um, the Pope for Muslims. And he gets there. He lands in Baghdad under Saddam Hussein's reign. And um, he, he meets the Grand Imam who has his whole posse. And he goes, okay, Grand Imam, I got a question for you. Do you think Jesus is here in Baghdad? And the Grand Imam goes, Carl, that's a good question. And then he talks to his posse. He's like, blah, 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 in Arabic that Carl can't understand. And, blah, 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 and, they, and then they turn back to Carl after a few minutes and they go, that's a good question, Carl. But I think a better question is, if God were here, what would he be doing in Baghdad? And Carl's like, whoa, this is the Grand Imam of Iraq asking me this question. That's a good question. What do you think he'd be doing? And he goes, right off the bat, he goes, Jesus, that's easy. Jesus would be loving and serving the poor, especially children. That just showed me that Muslims are interested in Jesus. And Jesus is already there doing stuff. But Muslims aren't interested in Christianity. They associate that with the enemy. But they're very interested in Jesus. 
So they believe the Quran is the inerrant word of God, and the sayings of Muhammad are the explanation, still authoritative. But the Quran says Jesus had a miraculous life, a miraculous birth, a miraculous death, or not so death, or ascension. They're even commanded by the Quran to believe that he is Israel's Messiah. They call him Isa Messiah. It kind of sounds cool in Arabic. But they reject the word, the concept of the Trinity. In Arabic, the word Trinity is the same word as three gods. So they say, so you believe in the Trinity? And I'd be like, well, yeah, I do. And they'd be like, oh, you believe in three gods? And I was like, oh, no, I don't. So I got stuck. I answered a trick question. That's what you don't do. <laughs> so they reject the Trinity and Jesus as God incarnate. But Jesus is inviting to everyone, right? He's saying, come to me. And we're just making the introduction. So for us as Christians, Jesus is really the ultimate answer. But for me in Kashmir, I learned that Jesus is the practical answer too. Jesus never answered any trick questions. He only responded with either questions or stories that had seemed like nothing to do with what the question was. So when I would get asked trick questions, I'd be like, hmm, let me tell you a story. <laughs> or tell a parable, or tell a story about Jesus' life. And they'd be fascinated. He would just, Jesus would just hang out with people, right? I learned just to hang out and play cards with them. So we have these similarities And I learned that fear is never from God. And that anything I saw or heard that, or experienced in media or whatever, that bred fear, I learned to reject it. And that as a follower of Jesus, we're called to love, right? Not fear. We can only love people. So these similarities build bridges, but got some really close bonds with these people. And I learned to focus on Jesus focus on relationship with my friends and just share what I had. I know Muslims who who are more passionate about God than me, who are better at loving people than me. So I learned I can only share what I have and I have to be in love with what I'm sharing. I have this intimate relationship with Jesus and I just make the introduction to my other friends. Right Out of the abundance of your heart will your mouth speak. I also learned to love, and you can only love people. You can't love an abstract thing. Like I can't just love all Muslims, but I can love these people that show up on the pictures because we've had a relationship. I also learned there's no need to get defensive. It doesn't help anything. It just makes people want to kill you more. <laughs> I learned how to craft better questions. Just be a friend. I learned how to give gifts. So some of those gifts that I learned how to give were not just stories about Jesus, but things that I did inspired by the gospel, by God's love, like teaching people how to ski, you know, giving them some leadership skills, Helping them navigate their environment more safely. So these mountaineering clinics that I would do with the staff, um, I would give away, not because I planned on it, but just because I just love them. I would give away my skis to people, all my gear, 
One time I came back with just a backpack and I went there with like all my ski gear. (laughs) But now there's people who can be ski guides and provide for their families and they can navigate the mountains more safely. People are having more fun, hopefully. It's just overall, hopefully, a healthier environment to live in because of God's love. So just being a friend and giving gifts that I had to give. I want to tell you about, um, these guys are having fun. They're just dancing in the street, in the mountains. This is awesome. Those are some of my good friends. I want to tell you a story about Abdullah Chacha. Abdullah is this old dude, no teeth, big belly. He walks like this. He's like this tall. Oh, man, he's awesome. He's in charge of the hut where the kids stay when they're skiing. So his duties include cooking for 120 kids. There's like 120-so kids on our last visit there and like 15 adults on staff. He cooks for everybody. So he cooks these humongous vats of rice and dal and curry, and he makes bread all on this little tiny stone wood-burning stove. It's amazing. I mean, it is some work. And he slaved away all day. He likes to fly under the radar. I noticed that, and I was like, I want to hang out with this guy. So I just go sit by him while he's cooking and, uh, you know, maybe just poke the fire a little bit, just hang out. We would talk about stuff. Um, he liked, I, I caught this flying squirrel. He loved that thing. Um, but, and I was like, should we eat it? He's like, no, that is unclean. <laughs> Anyways, we just really bonded. And then I learned that Bear Grylls, that guy is a terrible human. In Muslim, they think he's the devil because he eats so many unclean things. <laughs> but I really got to know Abdullah pretty well. He's awesome. Um, but I wanted, when I was leaving, I wanted to show him that I valued him, show him that I respected him, and that I honored him. And he loves his sunglasses, man. Those are his old ones. He's into those. <laughs> oh, man, his smile gets me every time. Toothless smile. But I gave him these Ray-Bans that I had, these aviators. They're, like, super fancy. And he was like, he put those on, and he was like, yeah, I am the king of the world. It just showed him, like, it was a prestige is attached to those, you know, and wealth and stuff. Basically, it was just a way to honor him. But I'm sure it made his week, probably his whole year. He loved them so much. But that was just an example of, an overflow of love. Super fun to tell these people about Jesus. So for me, experiencing God's love by trying to follow the person, Jesus, transformed me, my whole being, my body, my mind, my spirit. And then God uses this transformation in us to invite others to the person, Jesus. Jesus is living and inviting and mysterious and involved. This is intriguing to a Muslim mind. They love it. Their spirit hangs on their ears when you start talking about this stuff. Jesus is changing people, which transforms neighborhoods, which transforms communities, which transforms cultures. We're being transformed into God's kingdom. They have a 
good concept of kingdom. A lot of their cultures are kingdoms. And so you mentioned God's kingdom. They're on board. But we're being transformed into God's kingdom, one relationship at a time. And the agent of this change is not our will or a strong argument, apologetics, or even religion. The agent of this change is love. It's God's love first for us. Then God's love in us to others. That's why there's the great commandment. Love God and love people. They're on board with that. Muslims. But then, as the living Jesus works through the Spirit, His love in us makes disciples of Him, makes more followers of Jesus. But this happens almost as a byproduct of love. That's what I learned. So hopefully these stories and my experiences give texture and nuance and shape, maybe depth or clarity to you and how God thinks of Muslims. My dear friends. And the gospel does transform culture. It inspires change. I've seen it even in Kashmir. And if God can transform Kashmir, he can transform Summit County. Let's pray. God, thanks for transforming us, being involved, giving us hope. Thanks so much for the hope of Jesus and being with us and being in us and having the beautiful experience of experiencing you and other people. Help us share that with others. Help us help others. Just make the introduction to you. In Jesus' name, amen.